Okay, Cameron, welcome back. Uh, nice to see you. This is uh, our second discussion about surrealism in uh, And Descend. Mm-hmm. Mike, it's uh, good to see you too. And uh, yeah, we're going to start getting into politics a bit, right? Yeah, the politics of surrealism. So the first go-round we were discussing kind of the roots of, and of course that conversation has a lot to do with Freud, yeah, we Dada, talked about Freud a bit, World War One, All of that stuff. And so... Um, we really want to get into the political dimension. Uh, this might actually end up being a couple of podcasts. We're going to kind of see how it goes here. But getting um, into the political dimension means talking about Marx, communism, yeah. the Russian Revolution. Mm -hmm. Anarchism a bit. And everything that um, inspired uh, surrealism, Breton, and the surrealists uh, from a political perspective. Right, and then ultimately getting into the sort of internal disputes in surrealism itself. So... I think the basic plan is to start by talking about Marx a bit, talking about communism a bit, talking about the kind of historical context here, mm -hmm. uh, but in the in the political dimension now, right? Uh, of course, you have the um, October Revolution in Russia in 1917, mm -hmm. and um, the this period is meaningfully also when surrealism is is happening, right? Mm -hmm from uh, right well, the one, one book you have over here is like surrealism 1917 to 1945 yeah you're referring to uh, surreal lives by ruth brandon yeah, yeah the surrealist um, from 1970 to 45 and it kind of does describe like these you have world war one you have the russian revolution world war one mm -hmm. world war and leading into world war two and mm -hmm. the, and the in between years right and then there's the question of well, when does surrealism end or does surrealism end mm -hmm. right people will sort of pin it to, to different dates so um yeah, should we start uh, jumping in here? Yeah, and just to state, first of all, I mean, you mentioned one thing is how we're going to end up talking about kind of the rifts in surrealism, mm -hmm. um, of which there are many. And yeah. I think it's, uh, uh, there's a lot of fracturing going on here, politically and even within the arts. Um, and it kind of mirrors my own dive into learning about all of this. Yeah. Because, you know, you start talking about art and you end up talking about the complete history of human <laughs> about global politics and politics. Yeah. yeah. And so that's really fascinating to me that, you know, as we're, I've learned more about this subject, it's gone from surrealism, an artistic movement, and uh, paintings that are idiosyncratic, to really the heart of it, which is a movement that states that it is a solution to global political and economic problems. Right, and I think that that one central question that's in the background here, and will foreground at some point, is that relationship between art and politics. Mm -hmm. you know, is, is art inherently political does right. it make sense to say that it's not you know and and all of that sort of thing so um because i think in the manifesto it's Breton argues that not only is this an artistic movement but it is the ultimate solution there is no greater solution yeah Breton is always clear about it being his position at least mm -hmm. right is that um i mean i guess you could say that art is political Right. Art's not just like painting pretty pictures mm -hmm. that, um, you know, he'll say things like uh, you have to put your life on the line and things like this. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so um, Marx is a, a key figure. And uh, also, as we get going here, we should note um, not again claiming sort of thorough expertise. Um, I know a bit about Marx, but I wouldn't necessarily call myself a Marx scholar. Mm -hmm. Um and further, uh, if we talk about communism, which we will do, and talk about anarchism and so on, there are all of these, um, you know, finer grained kinds of positions here mm -hmm. and internal debates. And 
Some of those we're going to talk about a little bit, but we're definitely not going to dig into like all of these fine grained details about some of this stuff, just so that everyone. Yeah, knows. exactly. I mean, to be fair, we're not lecturing; we're discovering. And, yeah, uh, and it's a podcast a, about mm, surrealism. It's right. not. We don't want to get too lost in the weeds <laughs> about like, oh, but then you could be this kind of anarchist or that kind of anarchist, <laughs> or you know, yeah, uh, are you a Menshevik or a Bolshevik or? Yeah. So we're. I mean, we are going to talk about Trotsky versus Stalin and and all of that. We need to hit on that. But. Yeah. Um, but in general, yeah, this is a discovery process where it leads us down these paths that we're going to discuss where it takes us. Um, but we are of full understanding that you could keep going down those paths. And perhaps um, in uh, another podcast, some of these topics will be uh, dedicated uh, discussions later. Um, but yeah, so we uh, in general, we start with Marx like we did with Freud last time mm -hmm. because he's such a huge pillar of what, you know, s forms surrealism, uh, the political side of it. Right, so there's there's a question about the political dimension of surrealism. Uh, we talked about Dada a bit before. Mm -hmm. There's um, you know Dada Dada seems very anarchistic, right? Um, mm -hmm. Very sort of negative, right? I mean, subversive in the sense of just like you know destroy everything, undermine everything. Um, and so it, it's interesting because Breton ultimately comes around to anarchism later in life. Right. Um, in the 1952 essay, um, The Pope of Surrealism. Um, and he there suggests that part of the appeal of communism was sort of practical, right? That you had the Soviet Union um, and that you had then um, this sort of idea that this was successful mm -hmm. or like the six, um, that communism was succeeding. Mm -hmm. So being on the side of, of that. And I mean, also to make clear to everyone in terms of that historical context, you know, we're sitting here now in the U.S. in 2018. A lot of stuff has gone on with the Cold War and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the views of communism are haven't exactly been rosy in my lifetime. Yeah. Uh, for the most part. Uh, but you go back 100 years, people were really excited about this, particularly if you're on the political left. Mm -hmm. like communism was the big, exciting thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, also in the U.S., you know, when there were or socialism, right? I mean, again, all of these internal kinds of distinctions going on and so on. Mm -hmm. All right. So just to be clear, right? I mean, being a communist in France in the early 20th century, you know, I don't want to say it wasn't radical, but it was much more widely accepted, in particular amongst, uh, if you like, intellectuals and the like yeah right there's definitely some hopeful attitude toward it that later gets tarnished and the comparison you're talking about with Breton is uh going back to anarchism is also he's his view changes before and after kind of brushing up against the party mm -hmm. so there's you know you have the idealistic communism of what's exciting to see could happen and then there's years of transitions of power you know yeah. they go through these different dangerous phases right so so, I mean, to be clear here, then, we want to start with the idea of communism. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we'll get into historically existing communism, which I just wanted to put in scare quotes, but mm -hmm. um, communism. Um, so you go back to Marx, mm -hmm. right? The idea is, if you read, say, the Communist Manifesto or some of these other writings, first of all, you get this idea that history is the history of class struggle. Um, 
And so this kind of economic reading of the movements of history is at play. And um, this can tend in the direction of a certain kind of determinism, I guess, right? If you read at least certain parts of Marx, it sounds like capitalism will inevitably destroy itself, turn itself into communism. Right. Not that um, there's some possibility here with great effort that we can, there's a chance, but that he, he stands yeah. up and he says, this is what is going to happen and we need to see that coming. Well, at least, or sometimes it seems like that. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you read the Communist Manifesto certain times, it seems very deterministic. And then, you know, at the end, they list Marx and Engels here. Right. Mm -hmm. no, let's not forget about uh, Engels. Mm -hmm. um, they, they say, OK, well, so the communists are on the side of this party in this country and this party in that country. Right. Mm -hmm. So, that you know, depending what you want to emphasize, it does seem like there's a recognition. No, we need to do something. Right. Yeah. Or the, the famous final line, workers of the world unite. Mm -hmm. So is it um, inevitable or is it that in the right kind of propitious moment, the proletariat, the workers, right, this is the proletariat, mm -hmm. um, you know, need to stand up and have, you know, make revolution. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of both, right? So people will read Marx in different ways. And part of what's interesting then is in terms of the history of historically existing communism, if we want to call it that, mm -hmm. you've got different figures emphasizing different parts of Marx and, and so on and, and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. um, but okay, so central is history is history of class struggle. Uh, if people aren't familiar with some of these terms, uh, bourgeoisie is an important term. Mm -hmm. Proletariat is an important term. Um, well, yeah, let's let's break it down real quick, just yeah. because. So, proletariat would refer to the workers themselves. This is factory workers, and also includes like soldiers, sailors, even critics and people like that to some extent, right? Writers. I mean, potentially. Mm -hmm. Really, the structure is so. Start with the bourgeoisie, um, mm -hmm. where you're really thinking about capitalism here, capitalist class, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also the the petite bourgeoisie. Um, mm -hmm. So it's kind of like. The bourgeoisie, think about, you know, an entrepreneurial capitalist or something like that. Mm -hmm. The petite bourgeoisie would be like even someone, you know, owning a little store in your town. Business owners. Yeah. And, yeah. They're still a, a business owner. And so there's actually interesting stuff going on there about, you know, trying to get solidarity with them or to what extent they're on the side of the, you know, the bourgeoisie and so on. So historically, right, if you have the claim history is a history of class struggle, you can go back to things like the French Revolution, mm -hmm. American Revolution as well, I suppose. But the French Revolution is almost conceptually clearer here. Mm -hmm. The rise, well, this is the, the, the revolution of the bourgeoisie against the old you know, aristocracy mm -hmm. or the monarchy or, or, or what have you. And so on Marx's reading, it's really the economics driving things. You start having, um, you know, merchants, trades getting going, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And sort of for those economic reasons, Marx would suggest, right, this is where you're going to get this emphasis on the individual, on like individual freedom, mm -hmm. right? As against uh, a sort of surf structure, right? Mm -hmm. Where you'd have monarchs, lords, serfs, and you'd have this whole overarching notion that um, 
this is one's lot in life, that sort of thing. Yeah, there's no possibility for transition. You are basically stuck in yeah. what you're assigned. Like you're a serf, you're a serf, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and, and as if it's all divinely ordained, right. right? The king is the king because God. Right. And equally, you're a poor serf because God, right? Mm-hmm. You know? And so the push against that by the bourgeoisie, again, you can see this exemplified in, in something like the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. And, oh, we're going to kill the king, right? The French revolutionaries, when they killed Louis, right, their, their idea was we're killing the king. Yeah. Not just about killing this guy who is king. Right. We want to destroy the, th- you know, the throne, right. as it were. And that's where I mean, it goes further than the American Revolution, right? We're just like, hey, we don't want to hang out with you guys anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, the French Revolution is we're, we're going to kill the king. Um, and these ideas, though, that you get, like Enlightenment era thinkers, Thomas Jefferson, all of these uh, things... On Marx's view, it would be the economics driving this, not the ideas. Is it making sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, of course, in your example of the American Revolution, it should be stated that it's a co- it's different scenario. You know, there's not a king presiding in vicinity, and it's a little – the separatism is a little bit different than having a king at home that you need to kick out of the house. Yeah. So there's I mean, definitely some differences. Was, yeah, that's yeah. why I was moving more yeah. to the French Revolution as an exemplar. Mm-hmm. By the American Revolution, too. Just, okay, you have these ideas at play about um, the individual, mm-hmm. freedom, uh, social mobility, um, all of this kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Which you know, any number of people might want to say, you know, it's like the ideas driving things. No, Marx would say it's, it's really the economics and the ideas are coming in light of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well then... The communist revolution would be a matter of the proletariat revolting against the bourgeoisie. Um, but we need to talk a bit uh, about why, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I've marked here, I want to talk about um, exploitation and also this idea of alienation in Marx. Um, how familiar are you with these ideas? A little. Okay. No expert, but... Um. All right, well, let's start with exploitation. So, I mean, but you're talking in, in the sense of economically. So exploiting the working class for your own benefit, nobody gets uh, an investment in their own future. They're investing in the future of who's the owner, quote-unquote. Yeah, well, I mean, even, even beyond that, mm-hmm. right? On, on Marx has a real kind of um, uh, theory of value very much related to um, labor and the like, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, you're manufacturing some good. Right. What is the value of the widget or whatever you're making? Mm-hmm. You could talk about, you know, the, the raw materials that you need. OK, that's contributing something to the value, I guess. But the, right? the labor itself has an inherent value. Well, he, he really tends in the direction of thinking it's the labor that creates the value. Mm-hmm. Right. So hmm. like you've got, you know, some um, steel or iron or whatever and i don't know why i'm gonna say you're making a sword but you know mm-hmm. he thinks well what, okay you're taking the raw materials and it's, and now you've got a sword what now you've got the use value of you know this sword you can you know run around and stab people <laughs> cut them <laughs> okay, and stuff yeah why do you have a sword well it's because of the labor mm-hmm. so then meaningfully i mean we're really focusing on you know capitalism getting into industrial capitalism and so on right Mm -hmm. that you've got workers say at the factory that um it would be it's the workers who are really creating the value in the product Mm -hmm. now the structure of capitalism though is that rather than 
um, paying the workers in line with the value of their labor, mm-hmm. you uh, steal it as profit. Mm-hmm. And that that's basically exploitation. Mm-hmm. Because the, you know, like the capitalist, the factory owner, um, on Marx's view, really is not creating value so much. Um, they're, st- they're basically, I mean, it really, it's, it's tending in the direction of thinking that profit is stealing from the workers. Like mm-hmm. if you, if you paid the workers what their labor was actually worth, you wouldn't get the profit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to be clear here, we, need, we want to focus, you know, we're really talking about like people making money on the stock market and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right. That kind of level of, uh, um, it's about capital, right. Um, as opposed to money, um, money is only capital if it's like invested right mm-hmm. you're making money off of your money that's how people would think yeah of it's it. an abstraction that is backed up by force and by more money i mean it's like yeah. in modern times you would say an example would be like nestle you know purchasing a spring of water and then selling water like you know in, inherently who who allowed you to quote unquote own the water that you mm-hmm. can sell me now yeah but what we're talking about is more labor-based commodities in this example, yeah, I mean, you're going to get a similar kind of critique coming from a Marx and uh, Marxist point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, but the criticism of private property, mm-hmm. right, uh, insofar as communism involves the abolition of private property, which is an idea I would expect people to be familiar with. Yeah, the the conceptual grounding for that is getting rid of the exploitation. Right. So. You know, in, in, in terms of its idea, the model for communism should bring to mind less a picture of, you know, a totalitarian dictator like Stalin. Mm-hmm. And it's more in its concept, the idea of the workers owning the factory. Right. Well, right. and speaking of Stalin and that model changing based on flaws and power structures and such, I mean, it is said um, that communism has never really had a fair run. Like people say, oh, it's it's happened mm-hmm. and it's failed. Yeah. But then there's those that will say, well, has it actually happened? It's a tough question. Right? You know, um, another thing in Marx is that in the Communist Manifesto, it mm-hmm. seems clear Marx and Engels had the thought that you have to go through capitalism to get to communism. Right. Um, and this is linked to industrialization, too. Right. I mean, because you're talking mm-hmm. about the petite bourgeoisie mm-hmm. you're talking about the ability to have factories at all. This is also technologically at a time where things are shifting. Yeah, right. And and so it's, um, you know, it's also, you know, you don't go from an agrarian farming society to communism on their view because there's this thought that capitalism actually it unleashes all of these forces technologically and so on and so forth. So it's kind of a necessary evil to Marx or something? Um, just, you know, it, it, part of it's at the time as well, you know, writing in the mid-19th century and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, you were seeing still, I mean, French Revolution's, what, you know, 1789, mm-hmm. right? Um, you still, you know, had a king in Germany and stuff like this, right? Uh, moving in the 19th century. So um, that Marx and Engels there would say, okay, well, so in a country where what's going on is the bourgeoisie revolting against the aristocracy, we're on the side of the bourgeoisie. Right. Right. Because that's the progression toward our ends. Yeah. So. 
Now that's going to create an issue when it comes to talking about Russia, but let's hold off on that for just a moment further. Mm-hmm. Um, because I want to also talk about this idea of alienation, mm-hmm. which I think is um, interesting in its own right and, and connects up with part of the appeal, right? Or there's resonance with um, surrealism a bit here, I think. Okay. How so? Well, all right. So you're the worker in the factory. Or let's draw the contrast I made with the sword, mm-hmm. right? Like you're the blacksmith back in the day. You're making the sword. You're sort of connected to the product of your labor, right? Um, or if I, you know, potentially if, if you get involved in like crafts or, or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. You've you've created something. You've created it sort of entirely. And then maybe even if you sell it, um there's still a a, a sort of connection to the product of your labor. But also, I mean, not to interrupt, but Mm -hmm. a a sword is also, in this example, sword is something that has um, a methodology to making it, and there's quality levels. This might be something that your family has a stake in for years and years developing. Mm -hmm. It's it's a craft. uh, This craft, yeah. So part of this uh, value of making the sword is attached uh, you know, could be a hundred years of lessons learned. You know, mm. in the modern times, I think of like graphic designers or whatever that somebody charges several hundred bucks, and then the client yeah. says, "Oh, that took mm. you five seconds to make." And it's like, "Well, no, it didn't. It took me my whole career <laughs> as a graphic designer to put these yeah. ideals together." Well, so and okay, the point is not to wax too romantic about the good old medieval days. the The, the point is more that you you get into capitalism, and you know, think about again something like working on the assembly line that you're now alienated you're separated from the product of your labor it's not even it's not even yours mm-hmm. right like i know you're working in the factory at no point is what you're making yours mm-hmm. right um if you take one of the widgets you're stealing they'll say mm-hmm. right um equally you know you may not be making the whole thing right you're making the one little widget that goes together with the other or who's and what's it right mm-hmm. and um then so it's not only a matter of alienation from the product of one's labor, but this carries into alienation from oneself because one's labor becomes separated uh, from oneself. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Like in this sense, um, labor, it's, it's forced labor in a sense. Right. I mean, so you might almost want to contrast labor with work or something if that's helpful mm-hmm. you think about working an hourly wage job mm-hmm. you know um what you're selling your time or something like this right mm-hmm. um is do you, just in a you know sort of everyday kind of sense that i hope people can connect to if they've worked retail or something you know and be questioned if do you view the time when you're at work as a part of your life or is, is your life what happens when you're not working? Yeah. Right. Right. And in, in so far as you think of your life as only being when you're not at work, that's in line with this idea of alienation. Well, yeah. Plugging this into sense. like a mathematical algorithm. It's like money. You could claim money is life in that sense. It's your, yeah. this is how much time I've spent earning this money. There's an algorithm that, that tells me, what my life is worth to you who's paying me, mm-hmm. you know, but and so, so what we're arguing about in economics is, mm-hmm. is people's lives is, is, I mean, doesn't take too many leaps to get there. 
No, right, precisely. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of then, um, you know, viewing your life precisely in, in those kinds of economic terms and sort of capitalist terms. Mm -hmm. right? Time is money, mm -hmm. but you're, you're sort of, so you're selling your life for money mm -hmm. so that you can do stuff with the money. Right. And that's life. Right. Right. Something like this. So it's um, this alienation, alienation from oneself, alienation from the product of one's labor. But it also gets into that, you know, sort of commodification of um, labor and, yeah, sure, life, I guess. Mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, but and then back to the example of the sword. So this kind of brings up the question to me of how much is this. You know, in the factory where you don't own anything that you're making mm -hmm. versus the example of a sword, which to me, not to, you know, harp on that, but as an example, there's some like family history and methodology in the craft of making a sword. You're invested in, you're involved in that. And there is a certain degree of, you know, workers pride or whatever you would say, mm -hmm. you know, and that comes along with that. And that raises the value, you know, flash forward to a factory system of manufacturing swords today. There's somewhere out there, right? That will have machines doing it or whatever that will everybody that's working there is detached and if anything that family legacy or the lessons and craft that you've built to make the good sword um, is in the hands of the owner of the company or something maybe for a formula or recipe today we have patents mm -hmm. on you know stuff like that and so th that link to the example makes me think of all these things about how things change to le you know like weaker products that are more rapidly made because of the factory system and at the same time you know kind of pu pushing humans aside and saying no you know we can make more junk um that we will profit off of mm -hmm. and so it seems to me that mark's theory and the rise of communism is something that's dealing with this thing that is happening because of technology and because of just the change in right. socioeconomic but systems then, you know then there's the idea that look if we harness this technology properly we can potentially you know, work less and the like, mm -hmm. right? Um, so this quote uh, from the young Marx from German ideology we were talking about. Yeah. Um, what is it, 1846? Mm -hmm. When he writes this uh, bit about, you know, when we get there, when we achieve sort of the goal of communism or whatever, uh, you wouldn't be locked in to being a fisherman or a hunter or a critic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, rather, you could, you know, fish in the morning and hunt in the afternoon and be a critic in the evening. I think that's the example. Yeah, and hunting and fishing are cows really kind of close together. Yeah, but I don't know why that's. Uh, <laughs> well, the fish's bite is a little earlier. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you get the idea. Yeah, what you're trying to say is, I mean, that you wouldn't be just locked into sort of one social position, right. like you know, you're a fisherman. But that um, ideal is like the opposite of like the gray state Orwellian like future that we've a lot yeah. of workers today even have come to find themselves in right where you don't get to experience a dynamic diverse human life you're mm -hmm. assigned a thing and that's what you do for 30 years and then you retire yeah and so i mean okay what's communism supposed to be well the workers own the factory or we all own it mm -hmm. right um how that's going to work in details is going to lead to some issues Mm -hmm. But conceptually, just to stick with the factory, like the workers own the factory, mm -hmm. right? And then all share in the, the product of that labor socially. Right. Right. So um, that that's meant to deal with both the problem of exploitation and this issue of alienation. Sounds and, great. Sign me up. Yeah. And, and supposed to go wrong. It's really supposed to increase human freedom. Yeah. Right. Um, and you know, that if you even thinking about work, mm -hmm. you know, we're still trapped in this 
idea of um, jobs, mm-hmm. right? You need a job. Yeah. And Democrats will run for office and say, we need jobs, you know. Um, oh, school debt to plan your career. You're 18 years old and you're starting to get in debt so that you can have one of those. And then you're signed up to it for 30 years. And then. Yeah, but I mean, like. It's promising, but it can. It's very. In a modern way, it can be very bleak and well, it's still. And just conceptually. Yeah. I don't. I don't want a job. Yeah. I want a, a life. secure <laughs> economic basis. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like we're, we're, we're caught up in the means and we forget about the end. Mm-hmm. The, the goal would be, no, I'm, you know, I'm secure economically mm-hmm. and I can do what I want to do. Something like that, mm-hmm. which then, you know, potentially, if we're serious about that as a society, that could lead in the direction of saying, OK, well, let's try to make it so people have to work as little as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's minimize the toil. Um and uh, I recall reading something a few years ago about bullshit jobs that someone wrote. I can't remember now off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Like how many, how many jobs even in our economy are sort of uh, bullshit? Like do like people don't really need to be there? Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. they just don't need to be there. Yeah. Really, you know, but people need to work in order to support themselves. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing's built on that. Um, so well, I, I always I always pair that with how many jobs should be there for efficiency for I mean if you consider mm-hmm. you know trains and traffic and service and there's all kinds of sectors of society that you're like hey can we please put some more people to work doing this so that society <laughs> yeah. runs better yeah but and at the same time you know people worry about um, automation and technology I was going to bring that up yeah the stuff. rise of the robots who are about to hit us all right but you know from <laughs> a certain point of view that should be cool. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, we don't need to do that anymore. We just let robots do it. Well, under um, under this is all begging the question. It's like in, yeah. in a certain model that would be beneficial for all. But yeah. really what seems time and time again is that the few take the, reap the rewards and make the greater portion of humanity suffer. Mm-hmm. So that, and that's the exact thing that we're talking about uh, that Marx is critiquing. Right? Yeah. Well, so the move to communism would be, yeah, we're going to socialize all of this. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you, you want it to be as efficient as possible, mm-hmm. you know, and to serve everyone in these social goals, right? Mm-hmm. Hopefully become more and more efficient. We're not going to stop the technological development or anything mm-hmm. like that. The idea is to stop the exploitation. Yeah. Right? And in an individual conversation one-to-one, like 99.9% of people on the planet would agree with that, right? I One hopes. One would hope. I mean, I yeah. I mean, to to I would yeah. like to think so. Yeah, yeah. that nobody well, would say all things being equal. No, I would rather you suffer. You know? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, what yeah, I'm bringing up is like if, that, if it's that specific point. But you know, also, even in a one-to-one conversation, if I I've had them, you immediately get like, well, but communism's a great idea, but it doesn't work in practice. Well, that's what I mean. There's it's definitely fraught. Right. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. corruption and there's, you know, the question of the what you just described, the second question after that is like, OK, great. You know, but who's going to organize that? Yeah. How do we get there? How do we who is going to be the one that defends like if somebody's wrong and working against that? Mm-hmm. How do you curb that antithesis? Yeah. Is so, it really Stalin with a gun or, yeah. you know, so how we get there mm-hmm. is going to be a big issue. And I mean, also to go back to, to hit this point real quickly, mm-hmm. you do have the idea in Marx that capitalism will intrinsically bring itself to moments of crisis and destroy itself. Yeah. And in terms of the economic analysis, it's not clear he was entirely wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Great Depression, for example. Well, even in um, the modern sense, I mean, this is the banking crisis. and 2008. Things. Yeah. 
Uh huh. Yeah. Um, a bailout is socialist is fine when it's for them. What, sort of yeah. Thing, you know, what idea. What seems more questionable is that Marx thought, well, one of these times, right, people aren't going to put up with this shit anymore. Yeah. You know, um, and also, you know, it's more complicated because you have um, John Maynard Keynes and uh, that economic theory. Right. Um, which I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here, but you could view Keynes's view as kind of um, shoring up or trying to shore up that that very problem. Yeah. Right. Keep the crisis from being that bad. Right. So this is so. subverting the Marxist theory by saying, just a quick aside, by mm -hmm. saying that you can always shore up the economy by these bursts of um, in influx of cash, basically, right? Yeah, I mean, at, at really, times. really quick version of Keynes is, is the idea that, okay, well, Marx is right, first of all. You are going to have these moments. It's going to, the recession is going to come around, yeah. right? And, but so when the recession hits, the problem is you can spiral into um, uh, something like the Great Depression. Um, companies are making less money, mm -hmm. so they lay off workers. Mm -hmm. So workers have less money to spend. So people are buying less things. So companies are making less money. So they lay off more workers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, even that that's simplistic. But right. um, the basic sort of Keynesian move is to say, no, we need, so intervene as the government to stop that. And this is precisely something like the stimulus package we got, what, 10 years ago or whatever, or the tar TARP, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, this is like stop the bleeding, if you like. Right. But uh, arguably, I mean, Keynes probably would have suggested going even further in 2008 or 2009 mm -hmm. in terms of uh, economic stimulus. So that basic position of saying of what the government should do is go into debt if necessary at the time of the recession or depression mm -hmm. uh, to keep it from sort of spiraling out, right? Like pay people to dig holes and fill them back up again if necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess at least from a certain point of view, you could say, well, maybe that's related to why, um, you know, Marx's predictions haven't come true that within capitalism, we sort of found a way to, uh, keep capitalism from hanging itself with its own rope. Yeah, but still possibly temporarily. It still yeah. it still has to be shown if that's damming a river that's eventually going <laughs> to yeah, flood, right? right? Maybe I mean, Mark still was right. We've just like, mm -hmm. you know, put band-aids on our wound for 100 and years. And in those moments, really we're incredibly weak. If uh god forbid a horrible virus breakout or a, a horrible attack or mm -hmm. you know, who knows what form it might take, but in those moments where we're like, okay, we're putting the band-aid on and we're damming this part of the river again. Mm -hmm. Then something bad happens, and then suddenly it's a flood, you know. Well, and you've got— So it hasn't—we haven't seen the, the complete shitstorm of that. And, I mean, from a broadly Marxian point of view, so much of our modern economy is kind of um, built on air or something, yeah. right? All this financial capitalism stuff. Right. Doesn't, does it tie back down to, you know, material value? Mm -hmm. I don't know that it does. Yeah, right? that's so, so dangerous. Yeah, I mean, there is. Uh, I think that big question we face now: Can sort of global Keynesian capitalism keep going indefinitely? You know, maybe, maybe. But that's like um, you're just talking about ev sort of ever increasing debt, and it hangs on the question of it never fully coming due. It's yeah, and it's just it's 
thrilling, should I say, to have this conversation <laughs> right before the rise of blockchain, Bitcoin, <laughs> yeah. robotics, yeah, uh, I don't know. everything that's about to change. All this is we're on kind of like a watershed moment for a lot of economic systems. Oh, and geopolitically, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, I do think it's as worrisome as a lot of the stuff going on has been to me. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's interesting that in talking about this stuff now, that these debates are, they, they feel like they're being sort of reactivated in yeah. a way. So I think in, in yeah, we're, this, we're in 100 this, years late. Sorry, yeah. Breton, but we're here. We're with you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but I mean, not just with uh, Breton and surrealism, but the questions of communism, yeah. um, questions pertaining to, you know, fascism in, in a sort of technical sense. Yeah. Right. Um, communism in its concept is meant to be international, right? Workers right. of the world unite and so on. Um the sort of counter move that you get in the 1930s with fascism could be viewed as precisely, um, you know, it's prioritizing nation, blood and soil, mm. right? It's yep. nationalism. Scary stuff. National socialism yeah. is fascism yep. and is in its, I mean, you can, you can compare Hitler and Stalin all you want in many ways, but mm -hmm. in its concept, Nazism from the beginning was intended as anti-communist, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. Well, this is maybe a good jumping off point to discuss anarchism. And we also have, um, you know, Dada as anarchic and mm -hmm. uh, uh, surrealism and Breton stepping in and kind of drawing some lines from that and differentiating. And anarchism just as a, as a concept. So when we're talking about these systems of government, um, we're also talking about the possibility of the absence of a system of government and right. what would come in that place. And where kind of like Dada and Surrealism falls amongst that kind of painting. Right. And so we're talking primarily about left anarchism, mm -hmm. I guess. Right. It's really kind of interesting. Right. I mean, thinking about where things stand right now, you go back to the late 19th, early 20th century on the political left. Yeah. It was kind of like, hmm, communism, maybe anarchism. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, these debates are ongoing still, but um, would probably be viewed more as more to the fringes, I guess, uh, if you like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're, if we're talking about anarchism here, um, the primary touchstone figures would be people like uh, Bakunin or um, Proudhon, mm -hmm. if I'm saying that right. Mm -hmm. I always think I mispronounce French names. And, um, you, and you do. And I do. So yeah. and I pretty do. much always mispronounce okay. French names, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so when, when, you know, I think for a lot of people, this, this would look a lot like communism. Yeah. I mean, insofar as you have similarly um, a critique of um, private property and the like, right? Yeah, like the the term property is theft came up earlier as we were discussing. This is uh, something that uh, uh, Proudhon is, is states, right? So to mm -hmm. merely own something, to claim ownership, is to steal. Yeah, but to be clear here, he was primarily thinking about uh, rentiers was the term, right? Basically, thinking about landlords and the like. Ooh, uh, yeah. So the real estate, okay, you yeah. know, people. They're they're the big bad guys, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and it does seem like meaningfully, you know, if at least you read this stuff, it seems like everyone was agreed about that. You know, I don't know what happened to that consensus, right? Um, so the the re the real estate guys, the landlords, and the issue. So if you have the claim that property is theft, mm -hmm. you know, it's not criticizing your ability to own a book. Um, so much as if you are, if you're owning real estate and you're renting it out to people, 
mm-hmm. and, and the, that sort of thing that um that again here's a similarity uh to marx to a certain degree i mean they're different thinkers but mm-hmm. you know that the the concern is about you know you could say capital that you're um not just that you have something but that you're um making money by having it right so is in is inherently unethical yeah yeah it's stealing yeah right so how is it stealing well if you you think about like the commons this is where something like your uh, nestle example i think is better Mm -hmm. right for for nestle to say like we own the water in the great lakes right fuck you yeah right like how you you're stealing it yeah right i mean how could you say that this natural resource and of course at a certain level all of our resources are natural like you know at a certain level to to lay claim to that and say oh this is mine um and insofar as you're saying this is mine and not yours Mm -hmm. then you're you're stealing from everyone else yeah that's beyond absurd to me i mean what's the slippery slope of that it gets can i just claim oh i own fresh air yeah if you're gonna breathe air you owe me money oh yeah no people want to do that you know yeah people like if we let monetize everything yeah and there are some arguments for that they talk about like internalizing the externalities and things like this right dude you know no instead of having everything owned privately Mm-hmm. So that everyone has some private stake, right? Uh, or I'm sorry, there's always a private stake in everything, mm-hmm. right? God, this sounds dystopic to me. Yeah. No, just to say it's held in common. No one owns the water. Mm-hmm. You know, like because uh, the other side of that coin is just like mafia shakedown stuff. Like, uh, oh, um, you have to pay me, or else you're going to get hurt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> At what point is it just a threat for money? You know. Well, and then that's and so you consider the medical industry as well in that scenario, and it's it's pretty frightening to me what mm-hmm. can be privatized. Yeah, you start talking about medications, you start talking about the human genome, and so, yeah. certain things mm-hmm. you know that are this is very so this very is the thrust stuff. of this kind of anarchism yeah. that that it is the state that sanctions things like that property right. that is theft. Right now, where does uh, Bakunin fall with this? From what I understand, there was a bit of a split between Bakunin and Marx as well, mm-hmm. where Bakunin uh, is uh, kind of defending the complete lumpen proletariat and saying they have a stake in society as well. Um, yeah. Where where does he fall in this a- anarchism, left versus right, and what Marx's view is of it? Where is it just Marx arguing the bourgeoisie revolution needs to happen and quelching those ideas, or well, no, I think it's, hmm. I mean, you said lumpen proletariat, probably should define that. Um, we're thinking here about, I don't know, how would you put it in other terms? Like, like the, non-bootstrap having lower yeah, echelon like society? Real, the, the real poor? Yeah. The, the rabble? Yeah. Um, There's something I read that Bakunin was saying, wait, no, to Marx, like, wait, no, those people are a revolutionary force also. Yeah. Whereas I, mean, I think a lot mm-hmm. of the, the revolution... Uh, and the communists would on the rise would dismiss them and say, wait, no, we're going to decide for you because you don't even have bootstraps kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it gets to that sort of debate. Uh, and again, there are all sorts of internal debates and we could still have them. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, in, in our terms, it would be kind of like, OK, you know, are the homeless a revolutionary force? Mm-hmm. You know, but I mean, the, the, the tendency of Marx to focus on the workers. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, what about the unemployed? Right. You know, it, it's, it's that kind of. 
um, and levels of education and understanding. I think that was one of the Marxist mm-hmm. critiques of Bakunin was like, okay, so, but you don't really have the educated background to understand how society really works. And yeah. there's a little bit of idealism in that. And somebody's going to come up and say, no, anarchy, let's remove the government, you know, itself. Mm-hmm. That can end up working against you as well. Well, right? yeah, and so to be clear here, this chaos. kind of anarchism is saying we don't need a government. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need a state, in other words. Mm-hmm. Um, we can be self-governed, mm-hmm. right? Like like every cook can govern, sort of famous law say. Right. Um, and Versus like what would eventually be express itself as free market capitalism where there's the, mm. r- the right side of anarchism, right? Right, so people could identify as anarchists in a more libertarian kind of way, so... You think of someone like Robert Nozick um, in terms of philosophy, mm-hmm. um, really putting an emphasis on individual freedom, um, being entitled to property, mm-hmm. um, and tending in the direction of quote-unquote anarchy there. Mm-hmm. But that would be a model of anarchism focused on um, the individual. Yeah, that just seems to me like removing the checks and balances that are the good part of a government. Yeah, and so basically, you know, historically speaking, anarchism is not that. Anarchism is a movement on the left that's a lot closer to communism. Right, okay. And this is where uh, Breton is at first stating he doesn't want to see anarchism happen. It's the rise of communism. He's supporting that, but is not openly claiming and doesn't want the surrealists to claim, hey, we're with the party. He, yeah. he kind of brazenly says, no, wait, surrealism is above that even. Right. Whereas the, whereas mm. the party is kind of looking at him like, you need to quit these silly surrealist games you're playing and claim that you're a communist. Yeah. So, OK. So, first of all, I've been trying to look into a bit more in, of the details in terms of Henri Breton's uh, familiarity with anarchism and anarchist theory at different points in his life and yeah i still need to do more searching there i haven't found a whole lot so maybe next time we'll hit on that again Mm -hmm. um so in terms of at the beginning of surrealism why didn't they align more with anarchism than communism Mm -hmm. i do think dada was part of it that dada seems sort of too purely um just revolt chaos and no system to supplant yeah I yeah. mean, there's this other sense of, of anarchism where you can just think of anarchy as, you know, chaos, yeah. right? This more everyday sense, which is not really a, you know, it's not a theory. Yeah. So you want to, you don't want just chaos. You don't want just sort of a pure force of negativity. Mm-hmm. Surrealism has to be also, um, you know, have a more, a positive platform, right? Something in that direction. Which in the macrocosm discussing revolution is a, is a big problem, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, this is wrong. We know we have to stand against it, but we don't know what, what actually to do. Right, that so is a point of uh, you know <laughs> difficulties in the revolution for sure. Mm-hmm. So the alignment with communism, but always sort of tenuously, or there's always a tension, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, as Breton says in um, you know later life, um, part of aligning with communism had to do with the the sort of practical question. It seemed like communism was succeeding mm-hmm. in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's important to note here that in France and you know other parts of the West, you could say, um, for quite a while, a lot of uh, intellectuals were really on the side of the Soviet Union and really hopeful about this experiment with communism mm-hmm. happening in the world. Um, 
and that really, um, well, perhaps it's happened slowly, but at the end of the day, once everyone's really found out about the Stalinist purges and how many people he killed and so on, right? you know, then it's everyone's kind of like, And that's oh. a slow process of not wanting to see that happening, but not being able to avoid that well, it's there. Well, and the information getting out and so on, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the big Stalinist purges weren't until the late 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was known um, that people were put, being put on trial. More prominent figures, though, mm-hmm. right? And, I mean, of course, the whole thing about this for Stalin was about the purity of the party and so on, right? He would always have justified this in, in, in terms of achieving the goal of communism, mm-hmm. which is supposed to be like a classless society. Right. Which, of course, they never achieved a classless society right. in Russia. Yeah. Um, so that was known. But then also, um, as people may be aware, they, they, there were forced confessions involved and mm-hmm. things like this. Right. So, okay, you had these sort of show trials where people were being forced to confess that they were, in fact, working against the party and so on, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then also, um, there wasn't a lot of knowledge of how far this went, of just ha- hundreds of thousands of people, basically, mm-hmm. put in forced labor camps, killed, and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. right? And um, also part of it may have been a certain kind of active ignorance, like French communists didn't want to know that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're like, no, you don't want to undermine um, your your commitment to the you know the Communist Party, which again is international, mm-hmm. right? Well, and this is interesting too because they're leading up to this. You are introduced to uh, issues that come up that. Like there's the Neville affair, which I want to bring up right yeah, now. Yeah, I think it's a good time because that, yeah. um, this is somebody that comes up and says, wait, no, um, there's two paths we can go down here. Mm-hmm. And he basically brings the issue up so strongly um, that all the surrealists are forced to kind of look at the issue and decide. And this is one of the first kind of rift moments leading up to this that eventually kind of comes to that Stalinist question of, you know, how materially, how physically are you supporting what we're doing, yeah. you know, versus um, the kind of um, liberation of the conscious mind and in a very kind of ethereal way, are you handling this? Right. So last time we were kind of focused on the first manifesto and, you know, so people have listened to that. But there is a way in which this seems perhaps rather individualistic, maybe, and mm-hmm. idealistic, right? So, you know. Is the idea of surrealism um, a freeing of thought? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, seems like it. Um, is that you know idealistic in the sense of being too caught up with thought? Right. What about mm-hmm. the material basis of reality? Do you you know if you're going to talk about freedom and thought, does that not depend on a certain kind of economic freedom or mm-hmm. you know social freedom mm-hmm. right i mean if you're uh you know if you have to work in a factory all day long do you have time to do exquisite corpses right that's that sort of thing yeah and early on Breton says yeah. something about the point of surrealism is about allowing everybody to have poetry in their lives mm-hmm. to be able to afford to have poetry in their lives and that's seems to me the revolutionary aspect of it but there's also something at play here that i think there are these kind of like cycles or stages of revolution 
that where it's like it has to, almost like it's um, something that has to happen within in an, uh, a personalized way individualism first yeah before you reach this higher plane of understanding to know like okay now my family mm-hmm. and then once the family is liberated the whole family together can then say oh wait no our whole country or whatnot you know right. so there's there's this idea of these it's happening in stages and maybe different people in different movements and different countries different cultures even are at different stages of that same long trip to you know, freedom for all, basically. Yeah, but so, okay, Neville's question is, which way are we going to go? Are you going to focus on that kind of mental liberation, or are we going to focus on material economic liberation? Yeah, and he seems to say that the material economic liberation is a must, and otherwise you're kind of running counter to what you're claiming. Mm-hmm. Well, which makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Again, right? If you're working at the factory all day, you don't have the time to, you mm-hmm. know, play surrealist games. Or, so this is a pragmatic know. play, but mm-hmm. something that Breton both kind of, in some sense, I feel like he sort of defends that Neville is right yeah. and also takes a stance saying, wait, no, but you can't jump full into that. Or, um, yeah, I mean, he tr- really tries to kind of, um, you know, thread the needle here or something, however you want to put it, because he does want to recognize that Neville's right. Mm-hmm. Communists are right, mm-hmm. right? I mean, insofar as the claim is that you, you have to take care of the economic reality Right. right. I mean, this is just at a certain level true. Right. You mm-hmm. can't just, uh, you know, if people are and this you know, continues to be the case now. If people are working, you know, 12, 14 hours a day and we're working multiple jobs. Right. Or um, just to live. How you can't you can't say to them, like, you know, work on this um, mental freedom. It just seems too far off or right. something so you know it's um for also a, something very applicable with what's going on today when people well, are so busy yeah and it's just surviving put, you know put me in mind of uh something well maybe maybe we should return to this later but i was just um reminded of david lynch and thinking about transcendental meditation and the like mm-hmm. you know is that the move mm-hmm. um or is that really kind of individualistic or or sort of withdrawing I mean, yeah, I withdrawing think, into a metaphysical revolution when, in fact, we need a revolution of like bread and bones and yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think it's the same kind of question. We still face this kind of question. Yeah. What Breton seems to say in response is, "Yes, you're absolutely right. So in this degree, we're going to align with the communists, right? But if your claim is we need to forget about this other surrealist stuff, then um, I can't be with you. Yeah, yeah. No. He's like, we're going to still do. We're going to do both projects." Right. right. Well, he brings up, I mean, something that's vital and important also, because the, the extreme of um, Neville's thinking leads to the state prescribing to artists what they need to make as art and yeah. it enslaves them. And then that brings Breton to say, OK, wait, no, this is what we're fighting for. It's a real freedom. Mm-hmm. This, the real liberation of the artist cannot be prescribed what I need to be making. And in fact, mm-hmm. not only in that, even consciousness itself is one of those factors, one of those forces trying to prescribe to me what I need to be making. And the mm-hmm. subconscious mind needs to come out, and that's the kind of liberation that we're freedom that we're fighting for. So eventually mm-hmm. he's working with people like Diego Rivera and Trotsky, and um, maybe I'm jumping ahead of the game a no, little bit here. No, that's where we should go, I think. But yeah, the idea of, um, you know, uh, they work th- in Mexico, they work on this piece together that's a new manifesto of art. Um, and manifesto what, for an independent revolutionary art. Right. This is basically leading up to the rise of Hitler. This is 38, and this is in Mexico. 
Um, it's really Diego Rivera mm-hmm. and um, Andre Breton's names are signed on it. But it's obvious that Trotsky took a hand in, in writing this also. In, however we know that, everyone seems to agree that it was actually Trotsky yeah. uh, and Breton. And I don't know how involved Rivera was. Okay. Um, some questions there. Well, I, I, the story goes, and you're right, who knows, 100%. Mm-hmm. But that I think that um, Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera kind of um, hosted their meeting. Mm-hmm. I know that Breton was actually... Um, yeah. Uh, got funding from the government in France to travel to Mexico at the time. Um, and then, and of course, you know, Stalin uh, has kicked Trotsky out and Trotsky's living there. But either right. either way, we get, we get from more. the writing mm-hmm. um, exactly what we're talking about here, where, you know, the extreme of that is state-prescribed... Um, inspiration muse yeah well for a a political purpose and then that also strangles the artist right so you mentioned the rise of hitler i mean they already had hitler at least in germany right and stalin in russia Mm -hmm. and sort of in both instances it's moving in that direction Mm -hmm. of sort of state control of art Mm -hmm. Um, if you think about soviet art you're trying to put it in the service of communism and the like right so yeah, and shaming um, any artist that is not, basically. Right. So portraits of, you know, workers and, and, mm-hmm. that, and that sort of thing. And in either way, it's constraining the artist. So if you read this manifesto, that, that kind of seems like the central idea that the artist has to be free and independent in this sense, not, not subordinating art to some other purpose. Yeah. And it's the Ouroboros, too. It's, it links the two concepts together. By the end of it, it states, you know, the revolution for the art and the art for the revolution. Mm-hmm. That by freeing up the liberation of the artist, that frees up the artist to fight the revolution, and that the revolution itself is what is going to free up the artist. Yeah, yeah. And, but also that revolutionary art isn't propaganda in service of the revolution. Yeah. Re- revolutionary art is revolutionary in artistic terms. Right. Right. Which might, which then leads back to automatism, the subconscious yes, exactly. mind, dream mm-hmm. art, and this is w- this is really where um, it's it's quite fascinating to me, and where I get kind of chills about the idea, like because there's so many artists, right? They're like, oh, I want to I want to make art because I know my passion is there, yeah. But I care about what's going on in society and in for humans, mm-hmm. and it's obvious if you look around that things are not fair for a lot of people on the planet. Right? How do I use m- what I have in my passions? as an artist to help another to you know fight this fight that is going on and then here's the answer a hundred years ago Mm -hmm. people were working on the answer to that question well and again this is where you're getting really it's clear Breton's position that the art that or art rather is inherently political yeah it's already political yeah whereas like the communist party wants to subvert right art or or submit make it submit to the politics Mm -hmm. right and I think that's what's interesting about the response to Neville's question is that he consists, I mean, it's like an either or question and Breton continues to ex- uh, insist, look, we're going to do both. So that this internal tension and surrealism just continues and continues, mm-hmm. right? Is it about a freedom of thought and the mind? How does that stand in relation to material freedom, revolution, communism, mm-hmm. um, it seems he himself sort of refuses to accept the question as an either or, I guess. Right. But once this question is posed, mm-hmm. uh, none of the surrealists can deny that the question is in the room 
No, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and so that that creates kind of what I think a lot of um, scholars look at surrealism and say, okay, there's that moment where things start changing a bit. Yeah. And so you have the intri- uh, of course you have the second manifesto. You have at the same time Stalin's purges are happening. You have these excommunications from surrealism by Breton. Mm-hmm. You have a whole new wave of younger surrealists like Dali and other people coming into the movement. Yep. And so and then you have like Dali and Bunuel making their film. And you have the idea that, um, you know, Lage d'Or, and you have the idea that, uh, you know, there's this um, reinvigoration of surrealism at this time. Um, but I think, uh, and then we're going to get into all that, but I think there's a, a few loose ends to talk about would be, like, to talk, discuss Trotsky a little bit more and to discuss uh, Louis Aragon and the poem The Red Front, yeah. right? So speaking of Trotsky, we should probably go back and shed some light on him a little bit in relation to this whole conversation. Yeah, well, it's really interesting that Breton and Trotsky met up mm-hmm. in, in all of that. And you know, we talked about writing that manifesto for independent revolutionary art. But, mm-hmm. I mean, um, the way that Trotsky factors in, I think, is also relevant to some of the broader stuff we've been talking about, about communism, mm-hmm. right? The idea of communism. But now we want to dig a bit more into that um, practical concrete level, right? Like, how do you actually make communism happen and and some of that stuff? Because I think it is relevant to then the surrealist position or, right, how um, Breton's trying to position surrealism and some of these internal debates in surrealism, Mm -hmm. right? And so that leads us into the idea of a, a permanent revolution, right? So we're talking about the means to allow communism to happen, and we've also talked mm-hmm. about the several failures due to corruption or disorganization or whatever. Well, so this yeah. is something almost like the Jeffersonian idea that every once in a while there needs to be a reinforcement of the revolution itself. Well, or that it's, it's permanent, right? It's perpetual. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that, what it, with Trotsky, as I understand what's going on with Trotsky, which is not perfectly, unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it really seems to me to be at a kind of practical level question. Yeah. Because with, okay, so I think, as we mentioned before, we go back to the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels, and, you know, in some other places, mm-hmm. there are these indications that to get to communism, you have to go through capitalism, mm-hmm. right? People call this two-stage-ism or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is then, okay, now the idea of communism's out there. It's grabbing people, right, historically, and including it's grabbing people in Russia. Well, Russia at the time, not really a capitalist society, really more of an aristocracy, Mm -hmm. the czar, right? All of this, Romanov and so on. Mm -hmm. And so there's a a practical level question of, okay, like how do we do communism in Russia? Do we have to go through capitalism? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Can you say um, to the, the, you know, uh, working class, well, you're going to need to be exploited for a while? Mm-hmm. something like this um and as i understand it trotsky's sort of big thing was um you know precisely to suggest no we don't need to do two-stage ism or whatever uh and in its place you get this idea of permanent revolution which he also tries to find and source to marx mm-hmm. right like this is what i was saying earlier it's like what are you going to emphasize in Marx? And with these internal debates happening in, let's say, you know, early 20th century communism, different people are, are interpreting Marx in different ways and emphasizing different things in Marx, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, and so Trotsky em- uh, emphasizes this notion of permanent revolution mm-hmm. as it were in place of or instead of some idea of going through two stages. Mm-hmm. But he's also not he's also um, against Stalin's approach as well. Mm-hmm. Trotsky. So Trotsky is an interesting figure to me because, I mean, early on, <clears throat> he's a general, right? He's commended as being a smart military leader. In oh, a he's sense. right in there with Lenin. He's like he's really one of the big guys. Yeah. Right. Um, and the stuff with Stalin, I mean, most of this happens, you know, later, I guess, or at least in mm-hmm. terms of you know, once Stalin was coming to came to power. Right. Um, is when this really came to a head. To the point where ultimately uh, Stalin like erased Trotsky from history and had him assassinated mm-hmm. or after he was exiled. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I, I even read that even years later when Gorbachev is leading Russia and is uh, uh, going through and uh, granting uh, whatever the term is clemency or mm. basically allowing the certain admonitions to happen. And forgiving certain figures for what has happened, that Trotsky was kind of left out of that. Yeah. So still well, is kind yeah. of like not in the record as. Mm-hmm. But think about that. Being exiled wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was exiled. He bounced. He bounces around a bit. Mm-hmm. Ends up in uh, Mexico. In Mexico. Yeah. And um, then gets assassinated. Mm-hmm. But the first time they tried, I guess they failed. But then they then they successfully assassinated. Assassinated with an ice axe, I guess, <laughs> exactly, into yeah. the head. That's yeah. insane. So, uh, and that and was in what? They were, they were, sorry, uh, 1938 or 1939, I think, was when Trotsky. Okay, I don't know. Some of the island, yeah. I'm sorry. I had the date before, but we didn't seem to put it on our notes here. Mm-hmm. Um, just, to, just to fit things in but here. But at command of Stalin, by Stalinist agents. I think that's clear. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to mention the date because of, I mean, there's so much going on in the world, right, mm-hmm. um, that this would have been prior to um, Russia entering World War II and so on. Right. But, I mean, again, all of this is going on. Bear in mind, you have the rise of Hitler and the Nazis in Germany, mm-hmm. um, Stalin's coming to power in um, Russia, uh, of course, it seems like, by all accounts, Lenin did not want Stalin to be his successor, but mm-hmm. there was sort of no one else, and like maybe Stalin killed some people. Um, mm-hmm. So, okay, back to the theoretical level aspect. Do you have to go through capitalism? Well, part of Trotsky's argument in a place like Russia at the time was that the bourgeoisie were not... Um, I don't know, let's just say not really willing or able to pull off that kind of revolution. Mm-hmm. Maybe emphasis on maybe not willing to. Right. Right. Like there, there were um, uh, you know, sort of comfortable enough in their position of power. Um, and so the idea of permanent revolution in part involves in a society like this, trying to create solidarity between the workers, like industrial workers and the peasants. And the like, right? Right. So you, you're basically always coaxing the revolution into existence, and you can't mm-hmm. please everybody, obviously. But well, you have to make it in everybody's interest to at least allow an avenue for that to happen. Well, yeah. So and then it's um, the economic question, and addressing that is an issue. Where, but on Trotsky's view, as I understand it, it kind of the argument kind of relies on 
the idea of uh, communism as international and so on, right? So mm. it's a permanent revolution, not just within the one country, but in the world, right? And that that solidarity that would, um, you know, cross borders or involve other countries and so on um, would also be a part of addressing the economic aspect of this because part of part of the idea of needing to go through the two stages mm-hmm. is the industrialization and such you get through capitalism. Right. Right. So that's a qualifier in mm-hmm. some ways. And to Marx, that is a, a qualifier that we talked earlier that might be determined that it has to happen in that deterministic view. Yeah. You would say it's, that? It's interesting. Well, I mean, it complicates the question, at mm-hmm. least. You know, I mean, it seems to me like when Marx was thinking about communism in the mid-19th century, he was looking at us. Right. Like the U.S. Right. You know, and to have it then really take hold in a big way uh, in Russia is a little, you know, in tension with the the, um, the theory. And then the same thing in China. But also he wouldn't have thought that it would take a hundred years to happen either right i mean so at the same time you can't go straight from aristocracy to a socialist state but i mean how long did he think that that process would take organically um no i'm not entirely mm -hmm. sure right some people might have better Mm -hmm. sources on that and some indications i mean it does seem like he he wasn't thinking it was like in the far future Mm -hmm. he's saying look at capitalism you get economic crisis each one seems to be worse than the last one. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at you know, the U.S., in many ways, it seems like he was right. He had a big economic crisis in the 1870s. Then we had another one in the 1920s, Great Depression, mm-hmm. and it was worse, mm-hmm. right? Um, so um, I don't know. But what really comes to a head is this question between, uh, between Trotsky and Stalin. Mm-hmm. Who right? So I mean, the two-stage ism theory is sort of out the window when it comes to Russia in many ways. Um, but Stalin, in, he picks up on this line in Marx about the dictatorship of the proletariat, mm-hmm. and so that idea in Stalin is about using the apparatus of the state and the state's power to force the move to communism which is ultimately again supposed to be a classless society right but force being the key word with that seeing as how if you were considered a threat to the state or against Mm -hmm. the party line then you would straight up be assassinated basically ultimately as we discovered right so i mean trotsky is sort of more generally democratic and so on uh and ultimately with stalin you really do get uh, totalitarianism. Yeah. So what we're talking about is themes um, to, in order to liberate humanity that somehow keep ending up requiring the enslavement of humanity. And you have these mm-hmm. artists at the center of this trying to seek a way to even look at all of this to allow the subconscious mind to play yeah. a part of the game. Yeah. Um, and then to bring it back to this realist, there's um, something very interesting that happens with Louis Aragon, right? Um, um, a couple of interesting things with Louis Aragon. Um, with um, Red Front, the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a little bit of a back and forth where he travels to Russia and then he comes back and mm-hmm. when he's over there he says certain things. When he's back over uh, in Paris and then uh, New York, I believe, later um, says some different things. 
It's um, so let's fill in the fill in the dots a little seems bit here. Seems like so. it a little bit, right? So there's a whole question about the relationship between the surrealists and the communists. Mm-hmm. Bearing in mind, the communists are you know it's a it's a communist party we're talking about, right? So they'll they'll um, have you support them, but the second it seems like hey you're not supporting the communist party here, like we talked about earlier, they yeah. would say to Breton in these letters, you know, you need to stop all the surrealist games and stand up and just support the party. And when mm-hmm. Breton refuses to do that, he kind of there's a little bit of a rift there. Some of the surrealists say, you know, we actually side with the party more. A lot of them support Breton and realize that surrealism is the kind of the crux of what it is. Um, but Louis Aragon, basically, he writes Red Front, and it comes off being, um, at the same time, a brilliant poem that's got this imagery to it. It's very evocative, mm-hmm. but it also it comes off as a political statement. And he says some controversial things in here that certain parties want to hang him for, basically, but Breton comes to his defense. Yeah, right. The one line in particular about killing the cops. Yeah. Uh, kill the cops, comrades. Which is like body count in ni- yeah, 1990s. Yeah, we were talking about yeah. that. It made us put us in mind of uh, Cop Killer. Yeah. Which, um, yeah, body count is the correct artist attribution there. People. But that's, yeah, oh, body but count. Ice, Ice-T, Ice-T deserves a yeah. name drop, but people don't. I don't know if everyone knows who body count is. Well, but um, Ice-T wasn't hitting those guitar licks, though. <laughs> no, yeah. but anyway, but oh, that's yeah. it's a good conclusion to draw, or a, a good parallel, because it's also um, using poetry to describe a circumstance in society mm-hmm. that is untenable, and mm-hmm. you're using imagery to try to get your point across. And then the question comes, you know, is body count actually inciting violence? And we need to take that material approach and say... Hey, you're responsible for this. You can't, you know, you need to go to jail for telling people to kill cops. Well, yeah, I mean, or I is it p- this poetic imagery that does indeed, as it did, achieve its purpose to get people to pay attention to this issue? Right. I mean, I don't know how well people listening remember the cop killer thing. Maybe some people listening don't remember it at all. Probably more than re- than remember the Aragon thing. <laughs> I would guess. <laughs> Probably more than remember the Aragon <laughs> thing. That's fair enough. Yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, I sort of recall I was fairly young uh, when the cop killer controversy happened, but it was like a big deal. Yeah, it was huge. Uh, people were really upset about it, and this um, is also Tipper Gore censorship years, mm-hmm. and and the know. album got pulled, I think, right, mm-hmm. and it was a. Uh, yeah, the parental mm-hmm. advisory was um, being slapped on every album. Uh, Hip hop was being blamed for stuff. Mm-hmm. Judas Priest was getting blamed for the mm-hmm. there was a murder or suicide that happened. Parental advisory goes back to Prince, though I think. Yeah, I think Prince was the first. Hmm. With uh, oh did, really? Yeah, the, that song on Purple Rain, "Darling Nikki." Hmm. My understanding, we'd have to double check on that, but that, that that's my understanding that that was really what got the parental advisory going in the first place, which. It's funny because if you listen to that song now, it hardly seems that risque. Right. A lot of that <laughs> stuff, it is, it is funny. I saw recently a video somebody shared that had um, Ice-T on a stage with Tipper Gore and uh, Jello Biafra. Oh, okay. And it was Jello Biafra like really going and Tipper Gore laying it out, you know. Um, mm. Good video for anybody out there listening to look up that really did discuss this whole thing that we're discussing right now is that, uh, you know, where do you get off uh, – you know, claiming that you are the one capable of censoring what an artist will say mm-hmm. based on your ethical code. And meanwhile, if we take a closer look at you and how you act with, you know, your money and your kids and in your society, there's questionable ethics there as well. And so this is not a new question, basically. Right. And um, part of what I think is interesting is when Breton comes to his defense, part of the defense is that you can't just take a line out of a poem. 
Mm-hmm. Out of, you can't take it out of out context. Out of context, yeah. Um, and it raises some interesting questions about poetry versus prose and mm-hmm. the use of language in, in poetry. Right. Right. Um, I believe Breton's defense is called the poverty of poetry, which I think is playing on Marx's poverty of philosophy. Hmm. Okay. Um, but it also raises a question about the responsibility of the artist, which is particularly relevant to surrealism. Mm-hmm. We go back to thinking about automatic writing and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, this, you know, as Breton says, this poem wasn't really automatic writing. Mm-hmm. But if we go to that, at least briefly, if there's the idea of sort of writing from your unconscious, mm-hmm. well, how responsible are you for that? Right. Right. Um, so that's one question. And then another is, yeah, precisely. You're talking about one line in, uh, in a poem, potentially. Um, and this you is, have to look at least at the whole thing. Right. And this is also, the poem is called Red Front. It's in mm-hmm. four parts, just to describe it a little bit. Um, it's kind of playful, actually. Uh, it has this theme in it where um, the letters for USSR yeah. are kind of used SSR. to SSR. mimic uh, a train approaching. Mm. And this train that's approaching is the new society approaching the bourgeoisie. And the first part kind of hints like the bourgeoisie hearing this SSR, 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 you know. It's slowly approaching. The second part is kind of, um, kind of a call to arms to the proletariat in some ways. Uh, the third part is describing how the new society could be built up. Mm-hmm. And the fourth part is very much like um, exalting any soldiers in this battle um, that will fight in the name of this uh, revolution and it's stating something along the lines of, you know, every drop of blood that uh, you drop will exalt uh, Marx and Engels and you can yeah. picture them in the sky mm-hmm. and the revolution coming. Um, but it's very much like using this kind of uh, symbolism, using that idea that the letters themselves are like the sound of a train approaching. It's very, I don't want to say playful because of the content and how serious it is. <laughs> right. But it's certainly uh, a poem that in context you wouldn't look at and say, oh, this guy is demanding that people go out and kill the police. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of it is. But at the same time, it is an artistic call to arms. Yeah. And so like you say, it, it really begs the question of how how free are we to use metaphor and suggest certain things and to paint certain pictures. If you are talking about a revolution and you're painting a picture um of a soldier beheading King Louis, you know, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, are you uh, guilty of some act, uh, you know, of, of violence? Well, I mean, it gets also to questions about to what extent the uh, a depiction or, or what have you is um, an endorsement, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we were ta- when we were talking about this before, we also you know, ended up talking a little bit about David Lynch and the way people will sometimes criticize how women are treated mm-hmm. in Lynch films and Twin Peaks and, and such, mm-hmm. right? And you're portraying violence against women. Mm-hmm. But um, how how do you take that, particularly if it makes sense to think of Lynch as kind of pulling from his unconscious mind, mm-hmm. which I, I think is correct, right? you know? Um, so I think th- there's a little parallel there, a little resonance that yeah. I thought was worth mentioning. Totally. And it's also, I mean, not specifically back to the body count thing, but just it's back in the censorship days in the 90s, it was a lot about rap lyrics. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the question uh, that were being posed were, hey, is this, you know, artist reflecting what they're seeing in society? Or, you know, is yeah. art imitating life? Is life imitating art? And um, 
So I think it's quite important mm-hmm. uh, that Breton's point is, hey, I'm not trying to answer that question. I'm trying to defend the ability for us to keep asking that question. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, ha- precisely. And how important that basically, is. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. together with uh, Rivera and Trotsky writing that out as a manifesto saying that, hey, you know, art is linked to the revolution. If mm-hmm. you're fighting for the revolution, you're fighting for the liberty of artists everywhere to remain free to do their art how they see. Right. Yeah. And then it's also interesting, though, right, because Breton's coming to Aragon's defense in this affair, mm-hmm. which, of course, Aragon had been, you know, associated with the Surrealists from pretty much the beginning. Right. Yeah. He's one of the main players in the beginning. Um, but at the same time, we're hitting that moment where Aragon's about to break away. Right. And actually, that poem almost seems like evidence of that yeah. in a certain way. Right. He's getting more and more taken up by the idea of communism. And in response to that question we pinned to Neville earlier, mm-hmm. right, uh, who also basically left. Mm-hmm. He, he, Neville chose communism, mm-hmm. but it seems like they remained a little bit more friendly. I don't know, you know. Um, but Aragon seems to be right on that sort of precipice of choosing communism and moving away from surrealism. And yet here's Breton defending him anyway. Yeah. You know, which I think is interesting. Pretty, I think, commendable. I mean, it's like, um, you know, I may not agree with what you have to say, but I'll defend to the death. You're right to say it. Something like that. I mean, this might seem commendable, but he he, he, he says some kind of nasty stuff about Aragon later oh, on. Oh, yeah. So, they're, I mean, they're back and forth, right. yeah. But, I mean, yeah. we were talking about earlier, Baton was one um, that would just straight up get into fisticuffs to defend oh, his yeah. view. I don't think he didn't go quite as far as he did with Dolly, which, by the way, for people listening, we will eventually talk about Salvador Dolly. Yeah. Probably a bit more next time. We want to be sure to give. Well, him I think there's a there was enough to space. talk about there that but, we um, needed to give it. Yeah, you know space. what you know what came to mind for me just now is the fact that you know after after Dali's kicked out of the group, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, Breton starts calling him Avita Dollars. Mm-hmm. They start referring to Dali in the past tense like he's dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that is pretty severe. That's not just like, hey, buddy, you're not you're not a friend anymore. You're dead to us. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, because I mean, I think a lot of this comes down to how much is on the line, mm-hmm. you know. And so that was part of it from the beginning is discussing, you know, that this is uh, we're talking about something huge here. It has to do with the liberation of all humanity. Yeah, and that's where I think the Dali thing is a big question and interesting to think about in in line with what we've been talking about today about the relationship between art and politics, or mm-hmm. it, you know, is art political in, inherently that sort of thing? Because mm-hmm. it really does seem to be the political question that led to the falling out with Dali. He got fascinated by Hitler and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Doing some Hitler paintings and. Uh, um, so we'll we'll definitely be hitting on that question more probably next time after we talk about Dali a bit more as well, mm-hmm. because potentially you could frame that as the options at play, right? Is it Breton? Is Breton right? Is the art inherently political and like there's no way around that, or it seems like that Dali's position wasn't so much that that he thought mm-hmm. there was more of a separation between art and politics. Yeah, and I think could be argued that that's an advanced stage of what surrealism would become. Maybe. Um, it's also worth noting that, uh, you know, from the beginning of the movement, of course, there was this political nature coming from Dadaism where Breton is trying to define it. 
Mm-hmm. Then you have uh, the figure of Yvonne Gol, right, who mm-hmm. writes his own Surrealist Manifesto, releases it two weeks or whatnot before Breton releases his. And they have this argument of like, well, who yeah. is really Surrealism here? Mm-hmm. There's two different manifestos out for a few weeks there. And um, as the legend goes, uh, they actually came to fisticuffs where Breton and Gol uh, actually fought physically at the Champs-Élysées. Yeah. And um, so, but Breton having a number of artists behind him being relentless with promoting and talking mm-hmm. and writing about it um, seems to have won out. But that, I think, from the very beginning at its roots sets the stage for what, as we've been talking about, is just kind of like one fracture after another at each mm-hmm. point, though, uh, where a very valid issue comes up and then has to be resolved. So if you look at like kind of the story of surrealism itself, you have this... Uh, you know, uh, kind of a model for art itself where you get repetition um, throughout change. And at each step, you get um, this kind of like self-awareness is raising at each step. And one one of the big things, right, was the question of whether people were committed to collective action, Mm -hmm. right? That that led Breton to expel various people um, from the group. Mm -hmm. And I guess part of what I think is interesting about all of this and um, because it seems Breton's position would not only be that art is inherently political, but that it's an inherently or intrinsically on the left politically. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and I don't know. I, I think that's that's kind of interesting to think about. It makes me well, and then and then you think that Avida Dollars eventually kind of represents art on the right, or or in. I or think, what I else? think from Breton's point of view, right? Because why do you call the guy avid for dollars? Yeah, he's saying he's a fucking sellout. Is yeah. what he's saying, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you can't uh, like he's just he's just making weird pictures for money, mm-hmm. as opposed to revolutionary art. And so this um uh, this aligning of art with revolution and the political left. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know that it's untenable. I don't know that I would endorse it either. Well, if you flash forward and consider the art world today, certainly there's yeah. it's definitely political, um, and it there's definitely an economy that is mm-hmm. considered, and um, at least for those and music is like this too. There's the there's a cross section of artists and musicians that are the ones that are admired, and that that sometimes uh, intersects with those who are getting paid. Yeah, but uh, for the most part, I would argue, you know, that that's not necessarily the case. I mean, admiration, you know, through marketing mm-hmm. versus like artists, artists or musicians, musicians who who are actually like dedicated to uh, learning. And then, of course, there's factions of that. Like in music mm-hmm. world, you get orchestral musicians that spend you know six to eight hours a day practicing, and they get to the point where they can physically do things that nobody else can do. Yeah, and that has a certain niche in society. Um, but the an artist like we're talking about like symbolist poets and you know artists using metaphor um, who are staging something. There's like this act involved. Yeah. When I think about that type of artist today on the scene, um, this certainly could be its own podcast. I don't know. But you have <laughs> big money, huge dollar artists that yeah. um, kind of make an impact for shock value a lot of times. But um, certainly compared to the kind of artists we're talking about, the surrealist and Dada movement. I wonder, you know, where is the message? Um, mm. That's that's some that's not the same message. That's just the banal message that we have been hearing since Dada. 
you know. Yeah, and I mean to be clear here, my, I do not think the issue is directly getting money for your art, and I don't think Portalum would have said that either. There's some distinction between that and like, quote unquote, being a sellout or, or, or sure. something. Sure. Yeah. You know? No, I'm, um, I wouldn't make that claim either. It's like you're doing it for the money or something like that. Right. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it also for, it got me thinking about you know thinking about the question of politics and art and particularly if I floated the idea that maybe art has to be politically on the left um, this also got me thinking about humor to some degree mm -hmm. I mean why is it that it seems like conservatives aren't funny is that just me hmm. <laughs> well I, I mean it would be <laughs> argued that they are it's just uh, <laughs> humorous or funny or you know yeah or I, no, I mean I'm, I'm I'm thinking about stand-ups and things like this, I right? See. Like it just it well, just okay, yeah, seems I see. like that. Well, from the, the Marx the humor brothers, humor has a tendency to come from the left. Sure, from the Marx brothers to George Carlin. I mean, I can think a number of greats that uh, they incorporate that kind of idea of. Well, this brings up a whole other thing that we can talk about too. Is Breton later in his career publishes Black Humor, mm. which uh, is a collection of um, his uh, essays about other writers that he thinks are influential to the Surrealists. Yeah, right. And he was um, putting this book together in part to get some money to get out of Dodge. Yeah, he was trying like to flee uh, Europe. And we might talk more about this further in the next podcast. But just for now to say, um, yeah, he was trying he was trying to flee Europe. Uh, he had a new baby uh, and he was looking for something that he could quickly turn around, as was the publisher. Uh, Black Humor itself had a back and forth history where it was put on the back burner several times and eventually came out and wasn't a huge critical success but found success uh, later, yeah. and today is known as, like, uh, what a gift he gave us. And he us. collects passages from people, right? Like, Lewis Carroll's yeah. in there, right? Oh, yeah, Lewis Carroll, mm -hmm. Jonathan Swift, Edgar Allan Poe, um, a lot of the symbolists, uh, Baudelaire, Rimbaud. Um, uh, there's a lot of the uh, poets uh, that are from the symbolist French movement. Basically, anybody that he says, uh, this is what has influenced surrealism. Yeah. And he goes to distinguish that this isn't just uh, satire or sarcasm. This is like dark humor, the type of humor that allows people to, you know, cope with being alive and knowing they'll die kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so you get uh, a lot of um, cross sections of different people's um, uh, writing that is maybe not their most the thing they're most uh, famous for. Yeah. Like you get letters from the Marquise de Sade, you know, mm -hmm. uh, different people that it's like, OK, so uh, sometimes or Poe is a good example of what he includes with Poe. Uh, for each writer, he writes a little essay. But with Poe, he says, you know. Poe is so geared toward planning, like, exactly down to the line what the effect achieved will be to the reader that it's like he has a whole blueprint for his story before he even knows what the characters are kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's in that way a scientific, you know, approach that Poe uses. Um, but that you can find in certain of Poe's writing where he just lets his imagination get more carried away uh, and take the lead and therefore the subconscious a little bit and... Yeah. In that you get something like the Angel of the Odd, this really great post uh, short, but it's yeah. very quick and it could be considered a three-page-long joke that Poe is telling. It's hilarious. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's um, it's also interesting to me how this taste for the minor, if you like, mm -hmm. right? Like, well, the minor figure or um, the um, minor, less well-known little story, mm -hmm. or, or or whatever, which is really is something I feel a lot of sympathy for for whatever reason. Like, I'll get into some. Uh, author and I'm like, what's what's the least read one? Yeah, um, I don't know why. And um, why is it? And why is that the case? And oftentimes, mm -hmm. I think it is that the fighter taking their gloves off for a minute. You know, 
yeah. and then you get some you know it could be argued you get more of an organic uh, view at the writer's kind of like conscious or or subconscious mind their yeah. true self maybe and i think it also ties in with some of this stuff about sort of nonconformism or opposition and and mm -hmm. that sort of thing um that equally that um and maybe this ties into the idea of a permanent revolution in a conceptual sense mm -hmm. you have to constantly be revolting mm -hmm. because if something settles in as um established right it's it's on its way to corrupting and dying right you know so like if you win the communist revolution and you you, you establish the what's supposed to be a communist state that that will perhaps by its very own mechanisms again look at what happened in russia look at what happened in china mm -hmm. it becomes what's supposed to be a classless society at the end of the day this communist ideal mm -hmm. instead it gets sort of stuck where the um the bureaucracy ossifies and that becomes the class struggle if mm -hmm. you like right you know that you you do have two classes and so far as you have the government and the citizens mm -hmm. you know whereas in the idea of communism there shouldn't be a difference at the end of the day between the government and the citizens yeah it becomes like a never-ending fractal or something like that and this mm -hmm. is this is also where it's interesting to consider surrealism as a microcosm of all this revolutionary stuff happening yeah because you do have the factions and you do have the split you do have um, certain different parties arguing for authority over the movement. Um, you do have the rise and fall of it. And um, you do have an um, artistic movement that stands up to be revolutionary that then itself has other people that stand up within it and say, wait, no, now I need to revolt against that. <laughs> and um, it's very fascinating in that way. Well, I think you can view that too with, uh, with Breton kicking people out and so on, mm -hmm. right? I mean, on the one hand, you could say, he was concerned about the purity or something like that of um, the surrealist group. But I think on the other hand, maybe more charitably that he was concerned with it all constantly pursuing novelty on things like this, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't let it just sort of settle into a, a kind of art. Like yeah. he, he didn't want it to be that it had to be, uh, had to be more than that mm -hmm. on this view. Right. Yeah, it's interesting in the second manifesto and the writings that he puts forth at the beginning of that. Mm. Where he's kind of like, here's what here's what these people are saying about me, and here's my response to it. Yeah, you know, there's a little bit of um, you know, a little bit of not. Um, there's some back and forth there. Yeah, where you're some, wondering uh, like how how does this dip into petty at all, or and you wonder because you know, of the personal relationships, exactly. Like you know, and how much of that might have been at play in in, in some of this stuff. But it's um, like different writers trying to show evidence of why the person they're writing about is contradictory themselves. And it it just comes back to like, well, are you contradicting something about the movement in publishing that? You know, so I yeah. mean, and of course, nobody's beyond reproach. But as soon as you put somebody on a pedestal, it starts seeming that way, you know. Right. So they repeat the move with a with a un cadaver. Mm -hmm. Right. With. A, and again, I know I just said that wrong. In French, sorry, it's cadaver. Cadaver. I'm an American. Cadaver. Yeah, it, whatever, it, yeah. they, so the back cadaver. in 1924, <laughs> when they released this pamphlet and so on, and it was because Anatole France had died, and he'd been, 
widely celebrated as like the epitome of French literature and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And this kind I mean, it was this kind of a scandal that got the surrealists going that they were calling that into question. They're yeah. like, and plus they were making fun of a dead guy. Yeah. Which, you know, probably isn't looked really highly on in most places in the world, mm -hmm. but it's really not, you know, okay in France. Right. Say faux pas. Football. Yeah, that you pronounced correctly, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I, I, I took some French. Um, but but this is also kind of a national treasure figure. Oh, yeah. To yeah. buck the system, Breton is, you know, trying to knock off of a high horse uh -huh. for the, you know, the what the tenets that Surrealism stands by. Yeah, exactly. And then you flash forward and you get Cadaver with these other artists who have split from Breton are saying, hey, look, he's become Anatole France. Yeah, 1930 here, right? Mm -hmm. So after some of these splits have happened, and yeah, they're kind of repeating the move, mm -hmm. but now they're, they have on um, Breton with a crown of thorns or something. Mm -hmm. I think they're calling it. Yeah, that was on the cover of the first They call him the, the Pope of Surrealism, I think. Right. Right, like, oh, now he's, you know, being held up as this kind of lauded figure. Mm -hmm. And the cycle, um, the cycle repeats. Sort of. That's a question, though. Is it the same? Yeah. You know? Um, well, it's like at each stage you gain something, but then it's it's a, more like a spiral than a circle, right? So constantly moving in one direction, but circling the whole time in this repetitious way. Where it's a repetition with a difference or, or what have you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, And, you know, we probably we'll talk a bit more about this next time so people mm -hmm. know. Um, digging into some of the figures that are involved here. Um, we'll see how our planning works out entirely, but we are planning to move forward. We'll talk about um, the political question a bit more on some of these internal disputes. We'll talk about Dali a bit more. Yeah, I think this um, sets the stage well for us to continue on, talk about um, what could be considered the third manifesto. Yeah, we'll talk about the third or the prolegomena prolegomena to a third surrealist manifesto or not or not um there's a that gives you the option right there <laughs> um, well yeah it doesn't have to be well um it's because the prolegomena would be like uh, you're laying the groundwork right mm -hmm. so it's introductory kind of laying laying of uh, ground uh so it, it, it seems like when he was writing that one perhaps he was thinking so maybe this is the introduction to my third manifesto, or maybe I'm not going to write that. Mm -hmm. Maybe there will be no third manifesto, right? Which it would seem there isn't. So that's you interesting. You get the idea that one day they're going to open some vault in Paris, <laughs> and it's like the eighth manifesto of <laughs> surrealism. By well, Andrew I mean, it, it, the multiple manifestos too yeah. are evidence, I think, of him responding to the historical moment, right? Well, yeah, and it's like the permanent revolution thing. It's like it's to be wise enough to state, you know, this is an evolving thing we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's very much like the Constitution or something like that, where it's like a document that can be amended, even though at each stage it's like the amend the amendment is forced and it's not admitted, yeah. hey, well, you, there should be amendments here. Yeah, I don't know about the comparison to the Constitution, though, because this would be more like rewriting the Constitution each time. Well, but I think, Constitution I think the main, number two. Sure, but I think the main tenets that he lays down yeah, in the no, first I, manifesto I, I, yeah, all that, hold. That's true, but he doesn't you know. just yeah, but well, he doesn't just amend it. I guess I feel like it's rewriting it more deeply. But um, and then eventually we will get to really digging into the art a bit more. So 
Well, and yeah, we were talking about this a little bit is the order of operations here because, Mm -hmm. uh, again, it's it's one of those things you start talking about art and artistic movement, a couple of people, and then you realize that it's a couple of people in a movement that was at the crux of all the world's economic and political and historic Mm -hmm. problems. So um, knowing what influences led to surrealism and to Dada, I think two of the big things we we really needed to spend an episode each on was uh, Freud and modern psychology and the rise of the idea of the subconscious mind. Mm. And on the other hand, uh, Marx, the Russian Revolution, uh, communism and uh, socioeconomic fairness in, the, in, in this kind of new world and yeah. all placed in between the two wars. And, you know, yeah, so I'm glad that we were able to kind of have those discussions first. And I think having those discussions allows us a nice foundation to then say, okay, now let's really talk about the art and the specific artists. We haven't really talked that much at all about Dali or Ernst or uh, Artaud or any of these other people, but uh, we are going to, and um, I'm really looking forward to going through their work specifically. Um, But because we do like to dive deep, and because, as we said at the beginning of this podcast, I don't feel that this is so much a lecture as it is my own discovery that we're mm. kind of sharing. I really appreciate sitting and talking to you, Cameron, about yeah, this stuff. Cool. I think we come from different areas, and to kind of shed light on what um, the other party of us might have sh- shadowy areas um, is really a great conversation. Um, yep. But yeah, I'm really happy that we were able to kind of go through that um, because those are the major pillars of what um, Breton and all these people are looking at when they are making these questions um, happen at the time. And so, you know, moving yeah. forward, um, we will jump into those other areas specifically. We will. And if anyone out there, you know, takes issue with our interpretations of Freud or Marx or anarchism. Then or, let's meet at the Champs-Élysées oh, yeah, and have yeah, a fight. Yeah, yeah. Feel free to <laughs> at us on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, at underscore and underscore descend. Or you can comment on SoundCloud. Yeah. Some people have done that before. It's totally an open discussion. Do my best to engage and so on again. Yeah. We not all. I mean, not claiming um, to know everything, but also I know, particularly when it comes to Marx and Freud, there's room for interpretation. There's debate, right? Sure. I mean, like I, I live in the academic world to enough of an extent to know that there's probably someone out there going, hey, I don't know, Cameron, about the, what that thing you said about Freud. Right. So we can talk about it. I'm yeah. happy to do so. But I think a lot of that came from the fact that I think a lot of um, discussions, um, blogs, podcasts, video, YouTube videos that take on this subject start with slicing up eyeballs. Or yeah. What, you know? And yeah. so it's like I, I really am glad that, uh, or, I mean, you can watch, that we can I, have that whole pre-discussion about I enjoyed I, I watched this uh, fairly short video about surrealism with uh, Peter Capaldi talking about it. Oh, cool. With, I like Peter Capaldi. Doctor, okay. Doctor Who. Shout nice. out. Um, but, you know, it's like a few minutes long. I was like, well, that was cool. But I, I wanted more. And, you know, again, I feel like it's almost um, doing this to create something that I wish had already existed. So mm-hmm. hopefully people enjoy what we're up to. Mm-hmm.